Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. Danny will be conducting interviews here every day, talking with experts on food and agriculture, and discussing topics like the impact of COVID-19 on the food system, unsung food heroes, how climate change continues to be a threat to agriculture, and other pressing social and environmental challenges that impact farmers, eaters, and the economy. On today's episode, Danny talks with former Secretary of Agriculture Dan Glickman about how our diets can help flatten the curve of COVID-19. He also shares the lessons he hopes policymakers and the public learn from the pandemic. Enjoy the show. Today, it is really my great honor to talk to Secretary Dan Glickman. He is impossible to introduce, but I I will give it a shot. Uh, He previously served as the Secretary of Agriculture during the Clinton administration and was a congressional representative from Kansas for 18 years. He is now vice president of the Aspen Institute, executive director of its congressional program, and a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, where he co-chairs its democracy project. He also chaired the Motion Picture Association of America and directed the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics. He chairs the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition and serves on the boards of the Foundation for Food and Agricultural Research, where he is a past chair, uh, the World Food Program USA, the Food uh, Research and Action Center, and Issue One. I also have to say that he has been very, very good to me and Food Tank over the years. He has spoken at nearly all of our events and been a real supporter. Uh, before Food Tank started, he had a really critical uh, and, and um, heartfelt conversation with me about you know, the future of of food and agriculture, which I will never forget. And so I I am grateful to him. I don't know why he goes above and beyond for me, but he does. Maybe it's both because we're both from the Midwest. I'm not sure. Uh, Sir, before we begin, I just want to make sure that you and your family are are doing all okay, that everyone's safe and healthy. I did have my car stolen from in front of my house and a tree (laughs) fell down and hit the house next door to me. But other than that, we're fine from a health perspective. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm sad if those things happen, but glad you're healthy. That's really good to know. So I, I just want to dive right in. In March, you co-authored an article for CNN titled, How Your Diet Can Help Flatten the Curve. Can you sort of explain to our viewers and listeners why food is, is so important to our well-being during COVID-19 and, and just in general? Well, you know, there's the old French expression, you are what you eat. And, you know, Danny, you know as much as anybody in the country about the importance and value of the immune system. But uh, I've worked closely with uh, the School of Nutrition at Tufts University. Their dean is Darius Mazafarian, Mm -hmm. and he has been very much involved in this whole issue of how food helps your body fight off disease. And a lot of the things are, you know, a good balanced diet, low sugar, low salt, um, more vegetables, but but the, the fact is is that uh, p- some foods and people who eat well tend to be stronger physically, and mm-hmm. uh, with other things such as no smoking and adequate exercise can help fight off disease. So um, uh, you know, again, a lot of it has to do with eating plenty of fruits and vegetables, but mm-hmm. there are things such as vitamin D, uh, vitamin C, zinc. Um, there are other things in foods that can help you get stronger. And absolutely, not, not been a lot of scientific work done in this area, but I think it's something that most healthcare professionals know. Why not that much scientific work? Why haven't we been focused on that if food is really our first medicine? 
Uh, I think that the scientists have pretty much been devoted to finding things that uh, cure you once you have the disease mm -hmm. and not mm -hmm. very much on how to prevent the disease from occurring in the first place. And uh, I really think that that's it. Um, virtually all of our research goes into places like the NIH and the CDC and, and USDA does have some research. And obviously we have our dietary guidelines and there, there's a fair amount of research into nutrition, but largely it is totally escapes the National Institutes of Health. They do virtually no work in the area of nutrition. So um, uh, it's just an area that needs more work. I'm not saying that you can cure every disease in the world by sure. eat, but what you eat has a lot to do with how healthy you are. And a lot of medical uh, professionals ignore that. Absolutely. There, it has a lot to do with prevention. So, you know, everyone gets sick at some point, but the healthier you are because of what you eat, you know, the, the more likely you are to fight something off quicker or not get it at all. I, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the flaws that maybe you're seeing because you've been doing this work in food and agriculture so long that, that COVID-19 has exposed in the U.S. food system. What, what are we seeing that's kind of fragile? Well, I just noticed that uh, one company, Smithfield, has basically closed their entire pork processing facility. I think it's in South Dakota because they had a large number of uh, workers who were exposed to the disease. I don't know anything about it, uh, mm -hmm. but I suspect that you had a lot of low-wage workers, perhaps a lot of immigrant workers, and it, there's no question in certain parts of agriculture, it's whether it's picking fruits and vegetables or whether it's the meat industry, um, uh, the focus on the health of workers probably needs a higher priority than it's had before. And, you know, listen, most companies want to do the right thing, but we've never had this kind of epidemic of, of, of a communicable disease before, and it is starting to impact our food supply. Um, mm -hmm. While you can't, we don't think you can transmit this disease from food itself, you still need workers or you still need farmers, you still need ranchers mm -hmm. in order to actually produce the food. So COVID has exposed the fact that the food supply chain is very much impacted by the people who work in it. Absolutely. And, uh, so, uh, you know, we're, we're, it just, there's so many things that this disease, this plague, so to speak, is causing us to rethink in the area of everything, but certainly in the area of food and agriculture. What are some other things that's causing us to rethink in the food system? Well, I think that uh, for the consumers, uh, you know, we have this whole issue is about, is it safe to go out and to buy food, uh, whether it's at a grocery markets, grocery stores, or even at farmer's markets? Uh, uh, you know, I, I think we'll get a good handle on this at some point in time. But for the time being, it's causing every major segment of the American economy and food production is a huge part of it. It's over 10% of, of the GNP of the United States is in Absolutely. agriculture to, to rethink how we do everything, how we prepare food, how, we, how the supply chains work. Uh, this mm -hmm. is a big challenge for everybody in, in, in food and agriculture. We're not going to go back to the old days where we grew, grow our own food in our backyard. But at the same time, um, the communicable diseases of this type, if they're becoming more and more prevalent, are going to have to cause us to change the way that uh, we uh, deal with farm workers, the way we deal with workers in agricultural products, and, sure. con and consumer knowledge and information about how best to handle their food. 
Absolutely. I mean, some folks, seed sales are certainly going up. Uh, you know, I, I've bought more seeds than I ever have this year. So I think some people will be growing their own food, but we still need a very secure and safe food system that treats workers and the land uh, respective, you know, in, in a respectful manner. I, I'm interested in when you were in Congress or when you were uh, Secretary of Agriculture, were you ever concerned about a pandemic like this? Did Was it part of the discussions you had? You know, I don't really think it was the highest priority, certainly not when I was in Congress. And, uh, you know, I mean, the closest thing we had to anything like this was uh, there were some flu epidemics back in the 1960s and 70s, but nothing Mm -hmm. like this whatsoever. And in some sense, 9-11 has some parallels to this because it caused us to rethink the way that operate and act, but there is really nothing like this that I've seen before. You know, I live 3,000 miles away from my kids who live in California, and like I'm, I'm stuck here. I can't, I can't go out. When I go to the grocery store, you know, there's now, they separate you six feet between you before you go in if the stores are crowded. Now, they let people at my age in early. Uh-huh. I'm not telling how old I am, but if you're older than a certain age, you can uh, sometimes go into some of the stores earlier. I mean, these are things that we really never had to deal bef- before with. It is, it is, it is profoundly changing the way we operate in in various aspects of our lives. How long this will last, I don't know, but I suspect uh-huh. it's something we're going to have to live with for a long time, and we will adapt to it. This is not, I tell people as bad as this is, and God forbid if you have a relative that's been killed or died or anything like that. It's terrible. But, uh, you know, we'll find a vaccine for it. We'll change the way we our san- sanitary and phytosanitary systems work. We may change some farming practices in the, mm-hmm. in the process as well. But, um, and I think it also helped uh, direct marketing of agriculture. Farmers markets will probably be benefited through this kind of thing over the longer period of time. But we in America will still need a food system that supplies Absolutely. Meat, poultry and vegetables and everything else. And that system is going to probably uh, have some revisions to it. Absolutely. What kind of farming practices do you think will need to change? What What is sort of your vision for 18 months from now when we have a uh, uh, a vaccine, hopefully before then. But you know, eighteen months from now, what do you what do you think farming will look like in this country? I, I don't think necessarily going to see any radical changes. I there there needs to be overall much more research into food safety than we have now, and that's research in plants and animals, and uh, uh, in the area of zoonotics, zoonotics which is mm-hmm. the transfer of disease from an animal to a human being, where. Uh, this disease apparently came from the Ebola virus came from, we don't spend nearly enough on agriculture research. Absolutely. And that those numbers have been flatter going down in, in years uh, for the last several years. So the first thing we need to do is to recognize the importance of food and agriculture to our economy. And the fact that this epidemic shows that we need much more research into food safety, into food additives, mm-hmm. and, and also into health and nutrition. And those things have been kind of on the sidelines uh, over over the last several years. For sure. I couldn't agree more. We need to invest more in research and agriculture and, and food and health safety. Absolutely. There's just no question. I, I want to turn to policy a little bit now. And, and what could a better U.S. food policy look like, a food and agriculture policy in the United States that you know, would mitigate or even prevent the effects of a pandemic uh, like COVID-19? Well, you know, first of all, uh, uh, our 
farm programs by and large have been what I call monoculture based. That is, mm-hmm. farmers are supported based on how much wheat they grow or corn they grow or, or uh, soybeans. And they haven't given farmers the flexibility they have needed to grow uh, things other than row crops in many parts of the country. So fr- fr- fruits and vegetables uh, um, and are often not given the same level of support. So I think that's one thing that you, you need, we need farm diversity and it also mm-hmm. for the soil and for the environment. So we don't just have monoculture agriculture. Now, so there are some good trends are happening now, particularly with younger farmers and newer generational farmers. They're finding this is a, an, an interesting, certainly way to go. Uh, certainly direct marketing of farm mm-hmm. products and, and farmers markets have a really strong place in agriculture. Organic agriculture is, is taken hold, although I don't think it's going to necessarily dominate agriculture in the future. But, but the, the whole thing is that safety needs to be brought into all aspects of production agriculture and livestock agriculture. And, it, and it's there, but we're, what we're finding now with these epidemics, particularly the epidemics that can go from humans to animals and back to humans again, that's mm-hmm. where the focus needs to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those zoonotic diseases that you mentioned before. What, what do you think the role of technology in agriculture might play in preventing something like this? Yeah, I think it's huge. Um, I think that uh, we're going to, in several areas, number one, I think foods of the future, we're going to find that there are ways to make them more nutritious and disease fighting than, than mm-hmm. we did before. So, uh, but we still need more research into that, uh, more the consumers need to know right now they're bombarded with all sorts of information about what's good for them or what isn't good for them. And a lot of them is not based on science in the area of production agriculture. I think you're going to see a world where we're going to use far less inputs, uh, pesticides, mm-hmm. herbicides, fungicides, um, but that's going to also take research because Absolutely. you'll have to kill the bugs in some cases or, or else you'll destroy the plant life and uh, animal diseases will happen no matter what. I think you'll probably see some return to less intensive agriculture, mm-hmm. uh, especially, you know, in the livestock industry. But, um, but, but on the other hand, with good technology, you can produce livestock, beef, pork, poultry, um, without necessarily having a revolutionary change in Mm. in terms of what you feed the animals and um, how you treat the animals. So so I I think there's just a lot of excitement in the future of, of agriculture. And but but we do have to get over this problem we have now because Agriculture is not immune from uh, this COVID situation. And it really does worry me because what's happening is a lot of food that used to go to institutional use, like restaurants, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. Starbucks, you know, no longer is buying very much dairy. They were one of the right. dairy purchasers. So a lot of food is being thrown away. It's just being dumped. Dumped. Absolutely. Dumped. And at the same time, we have so many people who are hurting, who are poor, and who are accessing the nation's food banks. So it's such an anomaly. On the one hand, farm prices are low, and a lot of food is being thrown away because there's no markets for it. Uh, And then on the other hand, there's so many poor people who need access to foods through food banks and other places. Absolutely. And also through the SNAP program and other uh, feeding programs. So this is a huge challenge for policymakers right now. Absolutely. And I mean, 
it, particularly in terms of, of getting food to people who need it the most, what are your suggestions for handling, you know, uh, I know SNAP, there's been a big push to go to uh, online use of SNAP. What would you recommend to policymakers right now ar- around getting food to people who, you know, are are out of work? They really don't have the resources to to eat healthy. How can we change that? Well, right now, I think there needs to be some flexibility waivers so that the work requirements in the SNAP program, you know, are not necessarily realistic when we have this massive unemployment that's hit, sure. hit us so fast. So, uh, I think that there needs to be, you know, flexibility there. I think the basic SNAP benefits uh, need to be expanded right now in terms of eligibility because there are not an awful lot of middle income and lower middle income people who never found themselves in a situation overnight right. when they face this economic catastrophe. So short term, more eligibility for the mm-hmm. um, I think longer term, uh, there are a lot of questions we need to ask in terms of how diet, obesity, nutrition fits into various income groups, what we can do to make our programs better. I've been a big advocate of trying to make nutrition a bigger part of the SNAP program because I think that uh, we sometimes don't use the SNAP program for what its original intention was, was to, to, after all, the N in SNAP is nutrition. It's not just quantity of food. It's also quality of food. So those are longer term things. Yeah, quality really needs to increase. And I think, you know, not just folks who are relying on SNAP, but all of our diets. Again, it goes back to food as medicine. If we're eating better, we're going to be healthier. You know, this is definitely going to be a contentious election year. It, It already has been. What sort of influence do you see COVID-19 having on not just, you know, the national election, but also local elections and state elections? Well, of course, you have this initial problem of voting, where uh, is is COVID going to be a disincentive for people to come out and vote? And this has become a big political issue about whether you can vote by mail, vote absentee, as opposed to having to vote in person. That's become somewhat of a partisan partisan issue where, quite frankly, the president has taken the position that uh, voting in person is about the only way you should vote, even though he voted by mail, by the way. So it's it's kind of the ironic irony. (laughs) So one big challenge is these elections coming up. Will COVID uh, repress, depress, reduce voter turnout? And what can we do to try to avoid that? Because Mm -hmm. if we screw up the November election, COVID could have a big impact on our democracy. And uh, we need to try to uh, encourage voting. Some states are doing a better job than other states. But if you can't get within three to six feet away from somebody, then you're going to have to find a different way to vote than we do right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I want to go back to something uh, you mentioned, Dean Mazafarian uh, of the... Friedman School at Tufts University, the School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy, which is where I went, so I'm a big fan. You and he uh, wrote in an op-ed, I think last year, calling for every presidential candidate to have a food platform and for citizens to be able to ask them really serious questions about nutrition and health. That hasn't gone, you know, anywhere. And it, it, you know, food is so big in the news right now for so many reasons because of COVID-19. What would you encourage, you know, it looks like it'll be Joe Biden uh, versus President Trump. What what would you want them to, what would you want to hear from them right now on having a national food policy? Well, I think uh, I just would like to hear them say that they understand the relationships between 
food, nutrition, agriculture, and health. I, I don't think they're probably going to drill down much deeper than that during a presidential campaign year. But, you know, during the Democratic primary debates, they spend all this time talking about Medicare for all, Medicare for some, and right. uh, uh, health care programs. And rarely did anybody even mention the word of food, health, and nutrition, which is, a, a, you know, a huge gap in, in the discussion and the debate. Uh, so more than anything else, I would like to see it commented on by mm-hmm. candidates for president and other uh, elections so that it's not just ignored. You know, it's a little bit the same way how it's been ignored in the, in the nutrition community in terms of the medical side, where all the sure. research goes into cures for disease and very little goes into prevention. Well, the same things happened in the, when we talk about healthcare from a political side. People don't talk about healthcare from a prevention focus. It's always mm-hmm. from your focus. Now, I understand if you've got a serious problem, if you've got cancer, your heart disease, you want to find medicines that treat those things. But these diseases are often caused by the failure to eat right, sleep right, exercise right, and uh, all the prevention techniques that we know work. Absolutely. One thing um, before we end that I've been really concerned about is that we knew this pandemic was coming. You know, the the president was told in in early January that this was something we should be concerned about. What would you recommend for the next president, you know, to to have in place so that 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 sort of thing doesn't happen again? Well, they had a pandemic office, which this president apparently shut down. But uh, looking to the future rather than just looking to the past, we have to recognize that this is an area that requires as much attention as a terrorist attack on the United States. And we have to look at it in the same way. I I often say that what we have to do as policymakers is look at what are the asteroids that are heading to Earth that could really just destroy us all. And I'm not talking about literally an asteroid hitting the Earth, although if that happened, we'd all be gone anyway. But the asteroids are are certainly terrorism and asteroids, nuclear wars and asteroids, environmental degradation is an asteroid, but certainly a pandemic is an asteroid. And here we have one that's just transversed the entire world within about three or four month period of time, and we weren't prepared for it. A few people were talking about it, but it wasn't high up on the agenda of anybody. And that's what's got to change. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's certainly a national security issue and one we should pay more attention to. Um, I want to end on, you know, maybe a bright note. I'm wondering, you know, you're on the phone all the time. You're being interviewed. You're writing incredible pieces for uh, news agencies like CNN. Who who is inspiring you right now? Who's giving you some hope during this really critical time? Well, certainly in the short term, all these healthcare workers that are just risking their lives to take care of sick people, and so many of them gotten sick themselves and died. I mean, they are truly like soldiers fighting a war. And uh, so, I mean, this this is remarkable. And I think that, uh, and the second thing is scientists who are at work trying to find a vaccine for Mm -hmm. this particular problem. And then, you know, three is, is that we have an awful lot of people. We're going to have higher unemployment for some time to come. I mean, this thing is not going to end tomorrow afternoon. So those people working in the anti-hunger community um, uh, all over this country and the world as a whole are really people that I admire and folks that ought to be supportive uh, during these 
really tough and unpredictable times. That's the big thing where we are now. We can't predict what the future is going to be like. And I think that's what's scary to people. So so we'll make it through, as I say, but it is a tough, uncertain period. And uh, uh, I'm glad at least that you're out there working on these issues and helping people understand how important they are. Thank you. I really appreciate that. You can find more information about Secretary Glipman if you go to the aspeninstitute.org or foodtank.com. Any other websites you want to give out, Secretary Glickman? Uh, well, let's see. I do some work at the Bipartisan Policy Center. So it's uh, bipartisanpolicy.org. And then um, at Dan R. Glickman is my Twitter address. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate um, a reminder that this episode will also be on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And please join me again here at 5 p.m. Eastern time when I'll be interviewing Beth Dooley, uh, an author and agriculture expert from Minnesota. Thanks again, Dan. Please be safe and stay well. Thanks, Danny. Same to you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.